Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. It's the programme where we bring you different Christians in all walks of faith and life, talking about their faith journey. And today I'm joined by Lucy Pepiat, who's principal of Westminster Theological Centre. I'll be introducing Lucy in a moment's time. But if you'd like to hear more editions of The Profile via our podcast, why not go online at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile or indeed just look it up wherever you get your podcasts from and while you're there why not get hold of the latest edition of premier christianity magazine the profile is brought to you in association with that title and there you can read more interesting interviews with all kinds of people in christian leadership in different areas of life if you want a free sample copy of premier christianity magazine go to the website premierchristianity.com slash free sample Lucy, welcome along to The Profile. Thanks, Justin. It's great to have you with me. Thank and you. I'm looking forward to digging into <laughs> your past, into your journey, and also into a recent book you've written uh, called Unveiling Paul's Women, Making Sense of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. We'll come to that a bit later on in the programme. But uh, you are principal at Westminster Theological Centre in Bristol. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, it's actually, I live in Bristol and our offices are in Cheltenham. um, But it was the first college in this country to set up a new system of delivery um, through a mixture of residentials and local hubs. Mm. So it's a sort of mixed mode of delivery. We offer part-time theological degrees um, and, and that's all that we do. I noticed from the website you have these hubs now pretty much all over the UK. nearly all over the UK. We're still looking at a few areas where we'd love to set up some hubs. Um, But we, we... our aim is to make affordable, accessible theological education through the local church and actually literally in the local church. Mm. So it just give access to normal people who are not necessarily wanting to get ordained or to be, you know, to, to go into a formal ministry, mm. but just want to learn more about their faith and, and be educated in their faith. And in a context that's very vibrant, very dynamic, very spirit filled. So it's great fun. Has has the the college had a sort of um, background in a particular denomination or anything like that? Is it or is it sort of does it welcome people from across the spectrum? Yes. So my predecessor, when he set it up, it was had Anglican roots. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we made some changes in 2012, and it's now interdenominational. So right. we, it's interesting seeing the demographic of our students has really shifted in the last six years. And we have people from all over, which is brilliant. Yeah, that's really encouraging. Um, if you want to find out more about Westminster Theological Centre, it's wtctheology.org. UK. But tell us a little bit about yourself, Lucy. Um, is being a Christian something you always have thought of yourself as, or was there a moment when you something happened? Uh, what, what's the, the story behind your becoming a Christian? Well, I was brought up in, uh, in a brilliant home. Uh, my parents are both Christians, both um, Anglicans. Well, my mother wouldn't say she's an Anglican. She was a Presbyterian. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but she married an Anglican, went to an Anglican church. My dad was. Um, and actually, I, I think of it as a very gentle form of Christianity that I was brought up in. Mm. Where they weren't evangelicals. I didn't mix in evangelical circles. Um, and they were very freeing, brilliant parents, really, and mm. just sort of let us 
do what we want and talk and chat and debate about anything. So my own journey was that I I wasn't really very committed. I think I believed that God existed. I'm not sure I never didn't think that, but I didn't live as a Christian and mm. certainly w- went to university, certainly didn't. Um, but then after university in the following years, found myself mixing actually with some really wonderful Christians, mm. partly through my Um, cousin's family and it became something that became more and more and more attractive to me Mm. so whereas at university I had been irritated by evangelical (laughs) Christians and just didn't really want much to do with them um, despite them trying to convert me Um, I it was later on when I was working with the homeless in London in fact just around the corner from Premier Christianity Mm. at the Mm. passage Mm. So working with a bunch of Catholics who I found fascinating, they were all pretty intelligent and yeah. um, that mattered to me that, mm. that people had thought deeply about their faith and were well read. Um, and But they were committed to the poor and that mattered to me as well. Mm. And then I met some similar types of people in the sort of evangelical charismatic world. And um, rather than hounding me, they kind of wooed me into the, <laughs> into the center. And, um, and I toppled in and uh, gave my life to Jesus properly right. and was filled with the Spirit. Wow. And ever since then, I, I, was, I was nearly 24 and um, I'm a committed charismatic. That was right. the thing that won me in yeah, the end right. was the life of the Spirit, which mm. I thought was way more fun and interesting than anything, <laughs> anything else. Um- People sometimes, unfortunately, though, do sort of see the charismatic end of the church spectrum as somehow being anti-intellectual sometimes, (laughs) anti-theological even. Um, So obviously you've seen a way of bringing that together, not seeing any kind of conflict there. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, And actually, it is a bit of an unthinking wing of the church. Mm. I mean, let's be honest, you know, because it's based on experience and feeling and, you know, um, people sort of saying, oh, this must be true because I felt it all mm. and things you know us all running around claiming that God's spoken to mm. us well mm. those are pretty big claims yeah. and how do we measure <laughs> that you know um but so I uh, but but obviously in me was this academic which I didn't really know I was going to be an academic as much as I was brought up in quite a sort mm. of academic type family um but it was I actually, in my mid-twenties, felt that God was calling me into a preaching ministry, Mm. which was sort of slightly strange because I had literally just become a committed Christian, Mm. ended up marrying a vicar, which was not in my life's plan. (laughs) And, um, and, but I, but felt quite clearly just after I got married that, that I should do a lay readers training in the Diocese of London. This was back in the nineties. Um, which is a preaching role. Mm. And I was a young woman then, obviously, and there weren't many young women who, who did train to be lay readers, but you could do if you wanted. Mm. And um, my husband, who was my curate, and my uncle, who was my vicar, said, <laughs> both said, oh, that's a great idea. So <laughs> so I trundled off and did this training with a bunch of 60-year-old men and, um, <laughs> and, and loved it. And that was my first brush with, theology so I'd done an English degree before Mm. um and and I was oh I was completely hooked I I thought this is fantastic and so as soon as I could after I'd had I'd had some children I um I enrolled for a bachelor of divinity degree uh which I did remotely from Mm. uh, mainly from Africa um Mm. and got got that and then I never stopped I went on and you've been 
preaching and teaching ever since and of course mm. moved into this role you have now mm. with with uh, Westminster Theological Center I mean at any point along the way did you meet someone who said you shouldn't be doing this you're a woman Oh, well, that's an interesting... Co- I, I had people worried about my faith. Okay. Um, which goes back to your previous question of, you mm. know, sh- should we as committed Christians go into theology because it might mm. damage your faith? Sure, yeah. Um, my experience was the opposite. Mm. Um, no, I, I was very sheltered from this whole women thing. Uh, because Well, I, I married um, my church leader so (laughs) and he thought like me so that was fine um i i it wasn't really until i became the principal of of wtc Mm. and was moving then almost exclusively really in evangelical circles so before that we had uh, my husband and i had a very interesting journey in Mm. our churches we started in london went to zimbabwe went to inner city sheffield and then started a fresh expression so we we were sort of moving in mm. in our own circles yeah. in a funny way, um, but then I was immersed in this evangelical world, and of course, um, it was then that people said, "Oh, I know people who think you shouldn't be doing what you're doing," mm. and not actually our students particularly. I think mm. there's a self selection mm. that goes on sure. if you have a female principal, <laughs> sure. right? Yeah. But um, but. Um, yeah, and, and one person who was a new Christian who was really shocked, he said, I've got a friend who says, I shouldn't study here because you're the principal. Gosh, right. And I yeah. thought, oh, right, perhaps <laughs> I ought to have some good answers for this. So, whereas I had sort of been rather breezily going along right. thinking, well, I can do what I want, so it doesn't yes. really affect me. And then, I, and, and then that became something I couldn't carry, mm. was this, this reality that because I had been privileged Mm. that I just didn't address it and I thought that's actually unacceptable um I had been highly educated Mm. I Bible Society paid for my PhD which was wonderful my husband was incredibly supportive Mm. as were Mm. then my teenage boys and our church and and you know so I had been put in this position where someone had educated me and I thought I can't just keep my yeah. mouth shut you, you need to, to to make good on that i suppose i will come to all of this yeah. in a bit more depth a bit later because this is very much all tied in obviously to the theme of your latest book as well but um take us a little bit on that journey of of the ministry that you've been involved in in local churches um sounds like you've had quite an exciting life going different places with your husband nick mm. um and and the ministry you've shared together in that way uh now i think that expresses itself in local ministry in a church called uh crossnet, crossnet. yes uh, tell us about crossnet and, and what's led you up to that point well we started quite conventionally nick got a job um actually with my uncle i didn't know him then um so he did his curacy with um, in East Twickenham with my uncle Martin Peppiot and uh, he did a five-year curacy. We met and married in the middle of that. Um, so there we were in Twickenham, uh, which was lovely. The people were really lovely. Uh, but I think that both of us have a sort of slightly nomadic side to us and we, we were up for some kind of adventure. So mm. when Nick got a call saying, would you look at a job in Harare? Wow, we thought, Zimbabwe. Yes, yeah. we thought, oh, 
well, well, we'll have a look. And um, and it was the right place for us Gosh. to go. It was really clear. So we we went out there after Twickenham with um, a toddler and an eight-week-old baby <laughs> and arrived. It, we'd actually gone to visit, and so we'd met some people before, and we were really looking forward mm. to going. It was the most wonderful six years. We planned to go for probably about three, and we stayed for six what what was i mean 6 years obviously is hard to sum up in in a few sentences <laughs> but obviously many people are aware of all of the um ongoing change in that country yes. because of mugabe and everything um i don't know what period exactly you were there but but what did you see and sense in terms of the the feel of the place and what we what were you doing to some extent in terms of your local ministry there yeah so nick was the rector of a large anglican church in the middle mm. of harare um, and it was one of the evangelical churches. Harare, uh, Zimbabwe mainly had been sort of populated by the high Anglican church, mm. and that had affected the Anglican church across the board in the country. But there were pockets of evangelicalism, and this was one of them. And um, it was the most wonderful church. We mm. absolutely loved everyone mm. to bits. They were mm. our family. Um, it was multiracial. It was multicultural. Um, and what what struck us really from day one was just how loving, uh, how kind people are in mm. Zimbabwe. I think the the reason that Mugabe stayed on for so long is that actually the Zimbabweans are pretty peaceable. Yeah. You know, they don't. I mean, they're they're wonderful people. Mm. In mm. another country, you'd have had a a lot of violence. Mm. Um, they're very prayerful. So we had a we we were there ninety three to ninety nine. Mm. So this was before the real yeah. troubles kicked yeah, off. Sure. Um but we wouldn't have got a permit to stay much beyond no, that sure. actually. Yeah. Um and so in some senses they were the golden years, I guess, although yeah. we saw the writing on the wall yes. of trouble coming. Yeah. We had friends who were deeply affected mm. by it. Um and so it's close to our heart, but it mm. is an amazing country. Mm, we mm. pray for it still yeah, and and we're going you know, we'll go out and visit again at some point. Yes. Um, and and obviously that fantastic experience in that multicultural, beautiful setting that you were in, um, coming back to the UK, what what did that give you in terms of the way you then approached ministry back here on? British yeah, Shores? we made um, a decision which we felt God was calling us to to move um, back to inner city Sheffield, and as you can tell from my accent, we're not Northerners, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we we felt a strong call to uh, by God to go to somewhere where they had next to nothing and mm. this church was an extraordinary church it was tiny in terms of its congregation um but feisty as mm-hmm. uh, as sheffielders are mm-hmm. and uh, in the middle of an estate that was actually in upheaval that there's been a lot of building work done and um the diocese i think wanted to just shut this church down and mm. you know amalgamate it with something else and the people resisted and we came in at that point they said we know we want our own priest in charge we believe that God has a plan for this church and we believed that too so we went from this vibrant um, extraordinary sunny wonderful African church quite large as well I yes imagine, it was church. hundreds yeah. Yeah. yeah and five services a day mm. to a tiny uh, grey Sheffield <laughs> church and um, quite but a 
with, it was a huge contrast and there were no children in, in the church right. when we went there mm. so we went there with our four little boys there was one family with so your, one. your boys became the children's church basically. they did and they said <laughs> mum where are the children and I said well we're going to pray that the children come Brilliant. I love <laughs> so it. Yeah. it was tough actually yeah. it was yeah. a tough um, mm. decision but we never regretted it mm. and it was really good for us it was really really good as this southern family to go and live for mm. five years in Sheffield and to um, get to know people and to love them and be loved by them it was brilliant. How did you leave the church after five years? Well it was really exciting because we did um, a building project which was kind of not in the plan but I had mm. felt God speak to me prophetically and uh, over the church when mm. we arrived didn't really as exactly what it meant um, but I felt God say that he was going to take the roof off the church and I <laughs> thought oh that sounds really exciting <laughs> and then six weeks later woke up and and felt God say I'm going to provide everything you need um, for the finances in the church and I thought well that's exciting because the annual income for the church was about eleven thousand pounds um, we then a few days later our warden turned up and said she was in a real flap because she said the architect had been and the church had nail sickness in the roof and the entire roof had to come off <laughs> and be replaced. How interesting. And it was going to cost £150,000 and we didn't have any money in our church. And so my husband, to her great annoyance, laughed and said, I'm sure it's going to be fine, Joyce, because God's spoken about it. Anyway, that kicked off an absolutely brilliant step of faith on their mm, part mm. to do a massive rebuilding. Wow thing which mm. cost half a million pounds mm. so we left a brand spanking new building Gosh. with no debt <laughs> and um and a thri a little thriving com congregation so the congregation had grown up to about 70 or 80 there yeah. were children running yeah. around it was brilliant. all brilliant yeah that's just so good to hear about what happens when you sort of go somewhere which look so different but where you mm. you think actually god's calling us mm. and, and something happens i mean fascinating to hear about the the sort of that prophetic moment as well i mean as someone who obviously is comfortable in that sort of stream of the church the charismatic church um have you had any other moments where you can say something happened you know there was god definitely did something in a supernatural way or in a or you had an experience which which you know has remained with you for some time in terms of the uh the prophetic ministry or anything of that because i think sometimes people just think of theologians as just being interested in mm. doctrine and books. you know books and <laughs> making sure we all you know yeah. have the right sort of thoughts about yes. things yes. um but i think it's really interesting to hear someone who's obviously interested in that but also believes god is speaking mm. in very mm. direct ways sometimes mm. and in ways that kind of you know shape you and yeah change absolutely things and, yeah. yeah i yeah, mean are yeah. there any kind of moments you can point to as, as being significant um, in your journey on that front really honestly i would say hundreds right hundreds so and hard hundreds. to choose between uh, <laughs> but um the one uh a big formative moment for me um was when i was working at wtc i was teaching a module um and things got very, very difficult because my predecessor, for good reasons, resigned very suddenly. Mm. And um, we didn't see it coming. I don't think he saw it coming, to be honest. Mm. But, you know, these things happen. Mm. And and so it threw the organization into turmoil. And mm. I knew that it was in turmoil. And I knew that um, that it was actually kind of 
really life threatening potentially for the college mm. um, because it did all rest on him. Mm. And so I prayed and I I I knelt down and I said, Lord, um, what should I do? And I felt God say to me, Phone the chairman and offer to help. And I had met the chairman at a new wine the year before. So, and I was good friends with the director of operations. So I phoned my friend and I said, could you give me his number? And I got his number and I phoned him and I offered to help. And that was the beginning of an extraordinary journey, Mm. which then uh, led me to where I am today. Mm. Um, But what happened was that I, crucial moments of where I had to make a decision or someone was about to come to me to ask me to make a decision I felt God speaking to me about that before it happened so very little took me by surprise Mm. um, and I felt very deep down prepared for things that were about to happen Mm. Mm. in a way that I've never felt in my life before (laughs) and I think that it was just because God wanted me to do what I'm doing now for the for the time that I do it and one day I'll step down and hand over to someone mm, else but I sure. think that I'll know when when I'm yeah. supposed to do that <laughs> and I, sp- I suppose that those that ability or sense that God is speaking and and there ahead mm. of the p- things that mm. happen is only possible if you are sort of in some sort of committed prayer relationship with mm. God where, where you're asking God to speak in that sense and and I think very often a- again there, there can be this disjunct between the, the theologian who sort mm. of knows God through scripture and thinking and everything. And actually that very simple experience of, of praying and asking God to be present mm. in our day. And I suppose as someone who obviously leads a theological college, you need to be on your knees as much as, you know, I, yeah, I think leading so. from the front in a sense. I think also some of it is about language because I mm. know a lot of wonderful theologians who perhaps wouldn't be as sort of blatant as I would be about Mm. saying, well, I think God said this, you know, but actually are so spirit-led and God-led and I know they pray and I know Mm. they pray for their students and you can can read it in their books that God is communicating with them. Do you know what I mean? But it's not, they they wouldn't perhaps frame it in charismatic Mm. ways. But but you're right, the, the hearing from God is rooted in a relationship and an expectation that he will speak in some way um but i think it's the best thing about the christian life yeah, really absolutely <laughs> you've already mentioned you've got four boys yeah um so did god ex- did god tell you ahead of time that no, you'd be having thankfully. four boys you'd never have gone down that route otherwise <laughs> there are some things he doesn't say um for good reasons uh, no i i had my family one child at a time <laughs> which was important um I no, I, I didn't plan to have. We didn't plan to have four. I should no. say, um, we literally did one at a time. I think that was how we approached it. We thought, mm. well, we've got one. I think we think we'd like to have another. Yes. Um, I had a miscarriage. I think loads of women have miscarriages, mm. and mm. Uh, some have a lot. And you yeah. know, so so it's unpredictable, isn't it? Yeah. The, having babies, yeah, and sure. um, but no, we're we're hugely blessed, and I love my sons to bits. And I think having four boys as a mother is just one of the best things ever <laughs> I think I saw some of them when you were at Spring Harvest recently yeah. uh, accompanying you and they, they all tower they, they all seem like strapping lads yeah. and you know yeah. it, I, I guess having four boys in the house I mean makes for a slightly chaotic slightly 
I, I don't know. Kind of, Irreverent, uh, I yes. would say. <laughs> <laughs> kind of atmosphere. Yes. Um, the they, it, it does. There's a lot of laughter, a lot of fun, quite a lot of bawdy humour. Yeah. Um, which I think is great. And it, it just... They are actually all Christians Mm. uh, and they haven't always been. Mm. And we wanted to create an environment where they could ask anything Mm. and be anything, actually, because that was the way I was brought up. And I thought that was a better way to Mm. be brought up, even though you run the risk of your your kids going off the rails. But if you try and hold on to them too tightly, they will any, you know, they could Mm. as well. So Mm. we we just sort of let them do stuff and they did mm. and um we talked a lot and we prayed for them a lot yeah. and um they are all christians now yeah. which is that, great which is amazing and, and and in a sense uh there's no guarantees of that sort no, of no. thing in life is no. there and, and we all have to ultimately put it in the hands of god exactly um but but it's it's great to know that uh they've, they've obviously had a good example in a sense and even though I, I i guess some people worry especially i think people in ministry whether their children will necessarily see the best of what Christianity has to offer because yes, they inevitably they see the, the background they stuff. They do see they? some pretty awful stuff. Yeah. And actually, I think being honest about that is one of the things that helps them. Well, as long as you don't, it doesn't completely crush mm. you. I think that yeah. is crushing for yeah. a child to yeah. see their parent, you know, really, really mashed up. Yeah. But, um, but if one does manage to go through those dreadful times and mm. surface, yeah. then they also see that. Um, and the other thing that we did a lot of was was debate and i i do think that um young christians are more intelligent mm. than people perhaps give yeah. them credit yeah. for mm. and you, we must remember that in most schools their their faith is being undermined mm. consistently yeah. and yeah. regularly right. and so i know you have an interest in mm. apologetics mm. well our our teenage boys that was the thing i right. think that saved them right that's interesting right so yeah. apologetics is so good for certain people mm. at certain yeah. times yeah. and it can really yeah. really yeah. plug a gap that other things can't well we're talking today on the profile to lucy pepiat she's my guest principal of westminster theological center i'm justin briley and the profile brought to you in association with premier christianity magazine if you want a free sample of the latest edition of the mag do go online premierchristianity.com slash free sample and i'll be continuing my conversation with lucy on the other half of a short break Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Find out how the church reacted to the Grenfell Tower fire in our exclusive interview with Bishop Graham Tomlin. Plus, is hidden disappointment killing the church? We look at how to handle this difficult emotion and discover Christian views on gender and women's ministry in the church. Plus five miraculous stories, news, reviews and more out now in the June edition. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second half of today's programme. I'm Justin Briley and The Profile is the programme every Saturday afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio where we bring you a really interesting Christian in some walk of life. And today it's a church leader and theologian that I'm speaking to, Lucy Pepiat. If you want to listen to more episodes of The Profile, we're available as a podcast. 
Find us at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile or wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget that the profile brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest edition of the mag, go to our website and ask for one. Premierchristianity.com slash free sample. It's been really lovely talking to you about your family life and your ministry up till now, Lucy, and uh, all that you've been doing with Westminster Theological Centre. You've written a book recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called Unveiling Paul's Women, Making Sense of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. Now, you're not the first person to try and make sense of these passages. (laughs) Um, But before we get into that, um, let me read out 1 Corinthians Mm -hmm to uh, 11 1 to 16 which uh, in the niv begins with the title on covering the head in worship it says here i praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as i pass them on to you but i want you to realize that the head of every man is christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of christ is god every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about that, this we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So this is, I think, often left people scratching their heads, this bit of Paul's letter, yeah. which in so many other places is is full of really helpful stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, 1 yeah. Corinthians 13, you know, exactly. no wedding is complete without, you know, yeah. Paul's words on love and <laughs> that sort of thing. But this particular passage, and perhaps it may be related, a passage later in 1 Corinthians 14, I think people, not only are they struggling to understand what exactly Paul is saying, mm. but a lot of what people think he's saying we find in our churches today in all kinds of different ways as, mm. as somehow manifest in the idea, for instance, that um, if a woman is to have any position of leadership, she needs to have so-called covering of a man, the covering yeah. of a sort of some sort of male authority. Um, and you might see that, for instance, in evangelical circles where you might have a, a husband and wife team leading yeah. a church, but it's somehow seen that the, the woman is only, yeah, that's only valid if there's a man, as it were, providing the so-called covering so there's lots of air directions we can go in yeah. with this you've you've written a book attempting to give your explanation of what's going yes. on here um did did you succeed do you feel like you've got to the bottom of first corinthians 11 i think i've given a good explanation um i'm not the only person to go down the route that i went down mm. um so what i did 
Uh, and actually, I wrote a book before Unveiling Paul's Women called Women in Worship at Corinth, um, which is a more academic book. It's a more academic presentation mm. of this my... This is more the lay-level version it of is, that stuff. Because yeah. I wrote Women in Worship, and I also teach, obviously, at my own college, and I teach around the country and things. Um, and I was being asked by a lot of people could you just condense your argument just over this mm. head coverings mm. issue mm. and say what you think so I eventually got around to doing it and it was much harder <laughs> than I thought um, but I'm quite pleased with Unveiling Paul's Women I enjoyed writing it in the end and I think that it is quite clear and accessible to pretty much anyone I don't think you have to have a very high level of understanding pre-understanding um so what's going on I mean where where do you want to start in this passage I it's I love I love I love it for some reason I've (laughs) just read it four billion times I thought you'd be sick of it by now having having looked at it in such depth but no you still still like reading it I'm so fascinated by it I love I love reading it and I love I've studied it for years and years um I I began with this passage because people asked me, what do what do you think about women in leadership? And I thought, well, I think it's fine for women to be in leadership. But I hadn't really wrestled with mm. all of the debates yeah. and the discussions, etc. So I went to this one first. Um, and I'm glad I did because it's endlessly fascinating. Mm. And I began to read um, all of the different explanations for what Paul was trying to get at when Mm. he was saying women should wear head coverings and men shouldn't. So that's this kind of basic premise Mm. of the passage, although you'll have noticed that we end up with hair in the second half, right? Mm. So um, there is a debate about whether Paul's talking about hairstyles or head coverings. Most scholars will go on to the head covering side. That's where I am. I think in the first half, up until verse 10, he's talking about head coverings and his instruction is men shouldn't wear them and women should Right. And when you get to 16, he says, and we have no such custom in any other of our churches. That's what he says. So okay. so you need to make a decision because no one's okay. doing anything else. Right. And so I'm actually enforcing this mm-hmm. practice on mm-hmm. you of the women should wear head coverings, men shouldn't. Okay. So that's the that's what's in the text yes. for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some other very troubling, puzzling, difficult bits of mm. the passage. The first is why is he saying that women should wear head coverings mm-hmm. when they pray and prophesy? Why is he saying that men shouldn't? And a lot of people to try and make this more palatable for us say, well, it was cultural. Mm-hmm. You know, women wore head coverings mm-hmm. back then, didn't they? So mm-hmm. that's fine. Right. So that explains it. Yeah. But actually, that doesn't explain it <laughs> because women didn't all wear head coverings back then. There were different practices okay. depending on whether you were a Greek, a Roman or a Jew. And obviously, the men the same. It depended on whether you were a Greek mm-hmm. or Roman or Jew, whether you put a shawl over your head when you prayed. Mm-hmm. So the idea that Paul would say to a Jewish man, take your head covering off, is odd yes and he was jewish Mm. so um so first of all we got a few questions about well why there's not an obvious answer and Mm. you can't go down the cultural route because the culture of the time doesn't allow you Mm. to do that but secondly you can't because actually the reason that paul gives you in the passage is not cultural it's creation 
And so he does give his own reasons in verse um, eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, starting in seven. Come. Yes. Yes. Yeah, do you want to read that out? Yes. Um, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. So there is something inherent in mm. a man, which uh, in his relationship to God, which means that he doesn't need to wear a head covering. And there's something inherent in woman in her relationship to man, which means that she should wear one. Mm. Now, that's quite a serious claim, yeah. actually. Um, so that really got my attention. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so verses seven to nine, I found deeply troubling. Mm. And as you said, I'm a theologian. And so I have studied quite a lot about the image of God theology and the implications of that. Mm. And this strikes me as being not in line with what we study in Genesis. Right. So that should cause us to ask mm. questions. Uh, for man did not, well, well, it kind of could be, right? For mm. man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Oh, we're familiar with that. Right. Because that's Genesis yes, 2. Sure. So that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, so we're all right. Uh, but neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Well, yep, that sounds familiar too. Mm. And we're okay with that. Mm-hmm. But then that's the reason given for why women should wear head coverings mm. in church. For this reason, and because of the angels. Well, that's even more tra- that's, that's even, that, puzzling. Uh, where, yeah, it's kind so, of like he chucks in the angels. What like, are where, they doing? Where do they come exactly. from? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, what, and what are they thinking? And why do they need women to have? Because it's for these reasons that a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her. And so even more layers mm, and mm. layers and layers and layers of this, the reasons given for why a woman should wear a head covering in church when she prays and prophesies. It, some footnotes from Paul would have been really helpful <laughs> it here, wouldn't been. they? It would have been. <laughs> so, um, and then he says, you should all do it and we don't have any other custom if you jump to 16 but in the middle bit Mm. he seems to be actually backtracking yes yeah so everyone notices that but they Mm. don't really know what to do with it and so you come to this you come to verse 11 oh in the lord however woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman for as woman came from man and this is his prepositions that he uses, that, mm. that he u- picks up from seven to mm. nine. In the same way, you know, woman did come from man, we think, in Genesis 2. That's a kind of Christian theology. But then he adds this, so also man is born out of woman, through woman. So it's almost uh, like he sort of says... Hang on a minute, but yeah. men are also born of women. Exactly, it's almost as though there's a little bit of a. He's kind of yes. He's is he's he what's it on he doing? Slightly. Is he trying to balance it? Is he going back? Is he backtracking? Is he changing his mind? People are divided on mm, that. Okay. They don't really know. Um, and then he asks this question: Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Um, let me go back to the mm. beginning. So I'll tell you what I think okay. and then I'll tell you how why I think these okay. questions are important that he comes to in, in 14, um, in uh, 13 and 14. Because when I read the passage, um, I a year before I had been to a conference uh, with a scholar called Douglas Campbell who has written quite a controversial thesis on Romans actually and mm. he argues that there are places in Romans where Paul is quoting 
a Judaizing opponent and that it's not actually Paul's words, mm. it's in Paul's letter and he wrote it, but he's using somebody else's argument to build his own. Okay, right? so it's like he's sort of saying, now, this person says this, yes. but here's but my I response say this, kind yes. of thing. Okay. And, um, and I, I heard him speak on this and I was really interested in his argument and I found the conference mm. interesting. Um, but what it sparked off for me was the I realised, of course, that Paul is doing this in different places. And actually, mm. in 1 Corinthians, we know he's doing it because mm. he's responding to the Corinthian letter. 1 Corinthians is actually two Corinthians. It's his second letter right. to the Corinthians. Though we don't have the first we one. We don't have the yeah, first one. So we call this So one he's yeah. responding to something they've written to yeah. him. He's in a dialogue with mm. them. And the frustrating mm. thing for us is we only get half the conversation. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, so I looked at this and as I studied it over and over and over again, and as I read everybody's explanations that I could possibly try and read, um, all of which I actually found really unsatisfactory. So I was mm. reading these explanations. I thought, gosh, they're very convoluted and they're really difficult. So you've mm. got you've got some people who traditionally um, people mostly read this passage to say that Paul thought that women were subordinate to men. So that was, and they didn't, but they didn't really have a problem with that. It's only in recent history that people are more embarrassed mm, by that. Mm. So then they try and twist it round to try and say, well, Paul kind of thought that, but not really, because then mm. he goes back on himself. And anyway, lots of different explanations. Um, but as I read it, I thought, well, I wonder if. What if he's in conversation with the Corinthians who are making women wear head coverings mm. in his absence? So he, he set up the church and he was there for 18 months mm. and then he left. And in his absence, he the church is obviously being run by actually a group of leaders who are divided among themselves, as we know from the beginning of mm. the letter. Mm. Um, we also know that there is a problem with the men in Corinth and that they are domineering and dominating and mm. that he is rebuking them and disciplining them in mm. this letter. Mm. So in there, there are textual clues to that. Um, so I think uh, there is good evidence that there are bunch of men in Corinth who were very concerned about their honor and their status. Again, this is scholarship mm. about Corinth. Mm. Um and that somehow they've taken Paul's teaching on head, on head, the, the head teaching that is mm. Paul's, that man is the kephale of woman. And they've made it into a reason for women to have to wear head coverings right. in the church. Okay. But actually, it's an oppressive practice because what they're saying is that unless you have a sign that's kind of going to compensate for your lack of glory that's because man is the image and glory of mm. god but you're the glory of man so mm. unless you have something that's going to put the angels minds to rest mm. and and put the the cosmic you know, keep the order in the cosmos mm. um you you can't speak you mustn't right. say anything and the idea for that a christian woman should have something on her head in terms of a physical sort of scarf or veil mm. in order to do something before god is a very odd concept mm. one though that has in a sense been seen in churches down the ages in in as much as you know even within our lifetime that yes, there, there has been a, a tradition of of women wearing Absolutely. a hat in church or something that yes. might be seen as a sort of 
you know, uh, something that came from this tradition. It could have come from this. It could also have been a sign of respect. Right. So it could it could be either. Right. I think. Yeah. I mean, and it could have come from the fact that Christians, that Christian faith was born in a Middle Eastern culture right. where women did where work. that was culturally. Yes, they were that, exactly. That would have been expected. So, um, and I've been to. But the question is, was it commanded? Obviously, exactly. and that's and, more and, the question. And, and and that's where you're what you're obviously addressing here. And what you seem to have done is said hang on a minute, this passage is Paul's commentary on what other people are saying in the Church of Corinth, particularly these men. Yes. There's this debate going on. Yes. And so is there a sense in which you would sort of highlight certain sentences within this passage and say, this is where he's quoting what they're saying yes i would say that and i would i would probably steer away a little bit from direct quotation Mm. idea Mm. um but i think i would say more that he is expressing their ideas through his words okay so um would you put it in quotation marks? You could do. Uh, and there are quotation marks. It's a fascinating letter, 1 Corinthians, because editors go through. There are no quotation marks in the original Greek. Right. But when you read your version in your Bible, you will see that at points editors have put in quotation marks. So the beginning right. of um, chapter 6 is one, and in chapter 8 there's mm. another, um, where they put quotes round Paul's certain of Paul's phrases um, because they say, "Oh, he's quoting the Corinthians," right? And so it, it, it and and some of that is still under discussion, like mm. in um, chapter eight. Um, but so here, yes, I think so. I think that you start to encounter Corinthian thought in verse four. So, for from instance. every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Yes, he's sort of saying, "Here's what you've been saying." Yes. And, and I think they would have, well, if they had said it, they'd know. Right. I sure. mean, yeah. So, um, so this is my theory. My, yes. So you said, have I come up with an yeah. answer? I think I've come up with a good answer. Okay. And I, I think um, if you look at it and you study it, so what I did in Women and Worship was that I deliberately tried to find the problems in current explanations and I wanted people to really think if you want to think this you need to know what the problems with your explanation are and I think that I've been quite honest about what I think the problems with my explanation are Um, one is that there's no proof I mean that's what people say to me (laughs) well how do you know because there's no quotation marks I say I know but so how do you know because there's no quotation marks so in a sense we're we're having to work with what we've got and come up with the best explanation And for you, the balance of evidence seems to lie in the direction of saying he's he's engaging an argument that they've been putting forward. Well, that's a very good way of putting mm. it, actually, because I think that for me, the balance of evidence in the whole of his letters. Yes. Mm. Um, Not just in this passage, although I love this passage because it's so complicated (laughs) and and you have to and it taxes your brain in such an amazing way um, because you get you you get to verse 11 and then you think, well, what are you doing now? (laughs) And then he says, um, you know, and then he says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And I think, well, yes, we do that all the time. Mm, So mm. did you, Paul, really think I you see, I think by that stage he was getting to the Corinthians and going, oh, come on, guys. Look, because he starts with prayer and prophecy and ends up with prayer. I mean, the way you 
put it near the conclusion of the book is like this. You say, my conclusion is that I think Paul is saying the exact opposite of mm. what most people think he says. Mm. And if we accept this reading, it turns the situation on its head. So so just to, to start to bring this together, you, you actually think that Paul's taking something that they're saying, there should be this system where women have their heads covered and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and men don't need to. And, uh, and they've sort of extrapolated something erroneous from what Paul's has been yes, teaching about exactly. headship. Yes. And Paul's coming back and saying, this is what you're saying, mm. actually. Mm. So where does he kind of actually... Because I think most people might struggle to see exactly what he does come out as saying then, if, right. if, if you're saying that. Yes. So what's his actual advice on the situation? So I think that what he does, my favourite verse probably is um, verse 14, because mm. he, he, well, so he asks them a question, yeah. which he's going to answer. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So it really is an open-ended mm. question. And then he says... Does not the very nature of things, he's speaking to men here, Mm. does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Now, um, that's a very peculiar thing for Paul to say, because when he went to Corinth, he took a vow not to cut his hair. Mm. And um, probably a Nazarite vow. And so he was, he'd been growing his hair in Corinth for 18 months. Now, I don't know if you've seen anyone <laughs> who's been growing their hair with not but having cut for 18 months. It starts to become but a, it's longer a, a than hippie mine. length. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And um, very funnily, I had a godson who came to visit, a wonderful Australian godson who came to visit with us. And he had this wonderful, long, luscious hair. And I said, I said, oh, how long have you been growing that for? And he said, 18 months. And I was like, can I take a photo of you? (laughs) The evidence of what happens to hair after 18 months. It was long, long hair. And um, so Paul had long hair. So what's he doing here? Saying, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Hmm. Uh, You see, I think that the Corinthians had strict rules about head coverings and hairstyles and Paul actually broke their rules I see and I think that they thought his long hair was disgraceful so he is kind of tweaking Mm. their tails a bit here Mm. and teasing them and saying come on chaps you think you yourselves think that long hair on a man's a disgrace but then you know give give credit but that if a woman has long hair it's her glory that's Mm. what you think so so where is what does she need on top of the fact that she's a woman created in the image of god and she has hair which is her glory she doesn't need anything else stop Mm. making her wear a head covering which, as you say, is almost the exact opposite of what mm. a lot of people have thought Paul was saying here. Mm. And it's kind of down to the fact that we don't have the other half of the conversation. Yes. And that it's sometimes difficult for us from the original Greek to know when Paul's engaging with their arguments yes. and when he's actually speaking. So we're sort of having to do a fair amount of the legwork ourselves yes. in, in that. Exactly. But it makes a huge difference as to what we end up doing in our churches, It's obviously. an opposite difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes. one question that might emerge from this is, and I interact with a lot of skeptics who, you know, have problems with Christianity because they think it's yes. sexist or whatever. And they might say, yes. couldn't God just have made it clearer? Yes. What do you say to that? Oh, my gosh. I'm totally with them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that often. I, I, and I look back over 2000 years of history and um 
is Christianity sexist? The truth is that Christianity has been expressed in through sexist and patriarchal uh, structures and forms really pretty much for 2,000 years. Um, but I think that we're at a very interesting time in history where there is a shift. I, mm. I feel a shift. I sense a shift. It's a very interesting... Um, Thing, one of the interesting things that's happened, obviously, I'm a female scholar, but the level of education that is open now to women, first in general, mm. is mm. hugely higher than really it's ever been, I mm. guess, globally, and um, certainly in the church. And certainly in the evangelical church, mm. that there are way more women scholars now. Still not a lot, mm. I have to tell you, but mm. um, but way more of us. And so women themselves are reading the scriptures yeah. for themselves in the original languages. And guess what? We're coming up with some different answers. It's interesting because we were saying before we came on air at the time of recording that there's there's been some interesting developments, sort of almost a, a, a Me Too moment in the evangelical church in the usa mm. as well um recently uh page patterson former head of the southern baptist convention came under fire for sermons which have emerged in which he firstly advised women not to divorce abusive husbands but to pray and where he also appeared to make a, a um sort of endorse um a sort of objective a, a, a sort of objectifying comment that, mm. that he heard by uh, by a young man of another young woman mm -hmm. by saying oh he's just being biblical mm. There's been a lot of backlash to that. There's been a, a letter signed by lots of um, women who from the evangelical church. It's also come at a time when, um, interestingly, Beth Moore, who's a well-known Bible teacher in the U.S., has written an open letter to her male colleagues about some of the experiences she's had mm. as, a, as a woman mm. in that environment where even if people hold the so-called complementarian view, the way they've expressed it has gone way beyond mm -hmm. any kind of biblical justification that they could come up with in terms of the, the way they've treated often women who, who who do hold some kind of a teaching mm. or preaching position. Mm. So it feels like there's a lot of um, energy mm. at the moment around this Definitely. issue. Uh, it, that, yes, and that's what I noticed. And I mm. think it was so interesting that it was the conservative evangelical Baptist women who wrote this letter mm. and signed it. And, and I hear that by doing that, they're also putting themselves under mm. fire with, from mm. it, within their own camp um so it to some extent being brave you know and it, but but um I, I, that's what i see is i see a shift i also see a real shift in in the men who are supporting mm. women and doing their own work and their own scholarship and saying that this is actually the dig deeper into the bible mm. and you will find a different story from the one that where the, this one this surface story that seems to have got a hold where women are subordinate where men should naturally lead mm. where a woman should follow and this effect you know we know it affects church leadership family mm. marriages and even the workplace right. so it's a serious issue mm. and the fact that men and women scholars and now look women on the ground mm. and men on the ground are just saying this isn't good enough mm. you know why are we doing it like this is a, is good it's yeah. hopeful well thank you so much for what you've contributed recently to the whole area um and if people want to get hold of uh, the book it's called unveiling paul's women making sense of first corinthians 11 2 to 16 and you can see more about westminster theological center where lucy is the principal at wtc theology .org .uk. Lucy, we've 
time has flown by. I would have loved to spend another hour talking these issues through with you. Thank but thank you, you so very much. much. No, thank you. It's been really fun having been you great. on the thank profile you. today. <laughs> Do listen back to today's programme at the podcast as well and tell other people about it too. PremierChristianRadio.com slash the profile or wherever you get your podcast from. And don't forget to ask for a free sample copy of our sister magazine, Premier Christianity magazine at PremierChristianity.com slash free sample. For now, I've been Justin Briley with you on the profile today. Coming up next, the best of Premier in Premier Playback.